Hello everybody, welcome to this special mini-episode of the Naked Security Podcast with the timely title, Homeschooling, How to Stay Secure. I'm Paul Ducklin and I'm joined today by my colleague Sally Adam. Now Sally, your day job is marketing director, so a lot of what you do is persuading other people why cybersecurity is important, but you wrote this very popular article on homeschooling how to stay secure because suddenly you found yourself having to be a cybersecurity expert in your own home. Yes, absolutely, Duck. So as you say, I usually work at Sophos with our experts and then take their advice and, and share it. And then with homeschooling happening, I've got two children of primary school age, found myself having to take the lead in enabling secure homeschooling for us as a family. So that's really where the article came from, all of the things that I started having to think through as we began schooling, because we hadn't really used computers uh, with the children heavily before. They'd, they'd used a games console, but homeschooling was really the first time they'd had to properly use the, the laptop in earnest. So it got us going through a lot of security steps just to enable them to be secure when they were doing their schoolwork. There's a big difference between using a laptop because it helps you do your homework and having a laptop that you have to use because otherwise you might as well not be at school. Absolutely. And you're using the, the laptop, the device in more ways. You're perhaps having to do research. You're having to go on apps that the school has asked you to use. You're maybe using um, Google Classroom to, to get your lessons and to actually participate in lessons via Teams or, or something else. So yes, you're using the device for lots of different things with homeschooling. There were seven tips in the article. I just want to run through them very quickly. Firstly, create separate accounts for everybody on devices that you're going to be sharing, tip number one, because that means tip number two, you can enable parental controls provided by your operating system that while they're not perfect, can do an awful lot to prevent your children wandering into harm's way. The third thing is you then need to choose the right apps and websites for your kids. But while you're about it, you might as well think about doing that for yourself. You need to pick proper passwords you need to patch your devices. And when you've got all that ready so you feel confident to have an online family, then you need to sit down and have a talk about digital privacy for the family, including your kids. And then you had a seventh tip, which was kind of a bonus tip, that when you've done all of that, you might as well review the security of your home network. So let's start at the beginning. Because I know you went through this and explained it very well in the article. Most families won't have, they won't have a, a laptop for every child, particularly not if they're primary school kids. This business of setting up separate accounts for everybody, it seems like a pain, but it's absolutely vital, isn't it? Yeah, that's really the foundation, um, enabling each child to have their own account. I mean, it has the advantages that then you can set up parental controls so that you're able to continue with your work on your account unrestricted. And it also enables you to set different levels of parental controls because your children are different age, different things are things are appropriate. So yeah, that's really the, the starting point. So although it's a bit of a hassle, it's absolutely necessary because if you have one account for everybody and then you want to use parental controls, those parental controls will apply to you, the parent, which means that if you also need your laptop to do work, you, you almost certainly won't be able to get to your work sites. And it also means that if you have two children, their files are kept separate. If one child makes a mistake, 
it won't instantly and automatically affect the other. And it's also just setting some good security practices right from the start, you know, having your own account, just having that as a basic principle is, is I think, a really good thing to get across to the children. Now, enabling parental controls, you've got a description for Windows and for Mac in the article. You know, it is a little bit scary and you might think, gosh, it's going to take up a load of time. My personal advice is to do it at the weekend when you've just got a bit more time, you can do a bit more research, they feel there's there's less pressure on with the the classwork. So do it. Um, It's not as daunting as, as it might seem. And actually just setting down, getting down and starting is often the hardest part. And there's loads of advice for whichever operating system you're you're using, Um, you know, just do a search and you'll get some really good tips to walk you through it. Since you can't use them properly, if you don't have separate accounts for anybody, those two things go together. Those first two tips go together, don't they? And they're also really helpful, as, as you mentioned, for ensuring that as an adult, you know, if there's sites you need to get onto for your work that, that you're not restricted, whilst at the same time enabling the children to, to stay safe from inappropriate materials. Okay, so let's move on to tip number three, which is choosing, if you like, the right websites and apps for your kids. Like, how do you pick the ones that they ought to go to? You know, at what age is Wikipedia appropriate, for example? Well, I think that there's a couple of elements there. So there's the the kind of the resources that you have to to use for your schoolwork. So the school has specified, you know, we want to use this app. We've bought this maths app or some science app we want you to be using. And then there's also tools, for example, to to annotate PDFs. That's actually one that that we had last week. You know, um, please use this app to help you annotate PDFs. So those learning resources, and then as you say, the wider materials. So. I think it's really a case of making sure you only get them from the official places, checking out to see what other parents are saying about it. I noticed that in the article, you've made the point that as far as goes, things like reviews and star ratings on the app stores themselves, you might as well ignore those. In fact, you probably do very well to ignore them because sadly, even with Google and Apple, someone who really wants to put a rather dubious app and make it look better than it is it's sort of quite literally 10 a penny to get fake reviews and pay people to click five stars. You see your recommendation, you're saying, look, you know, talk to other parents or look for objective, independent user forums for the app. Whereas the reviews on App Store and Google Play, whilst they can be informative, you have no idea who wrote those. And you have no idea that the person writing the reviews ever even installed or used the app at all. And it's very likely that they haven't. Exactly. And they may also be writing their review from the perspective of an adult who doesn't need to have a young person using it. So, yeah, speaking to or finding out from from other parents what they've thought is a really useful way to just make sure you're keeping your kids safe whilst enabling their, their learning. So for some of these things, you don't have a choice. Where you do have a choice, do what you might call your due diligence. And I guess if you're parents from one particular school if you collectively think there is a problem with the app or that there's something about it that that leaves you feeling worried then you can always talk to the school about that oh yeah i'm sure that the school will be very very open to that feedback and and i do think also you know, generally the schools have done their own research before they they're recommending a lot of the apps too so very much a, a two-way partnership with the school with their with their it team Okay, let's get on to tip number four. Let's talk about passwords, because for better or for worse, 
for all the companies that tell us passwords are terrible and here's some fantastic new technology which will get rid of them altogether forever, we're stuck with them right now. And when it comes to homeschooling apps and services that your kids have to log into, it's almost certain that they are going to need their own passwords. How on earth do you take all that complexity, make it digestible for primary school kids, so that they aren't just choosing their pet bunny's name as their password every single time? So I think, Doug, it's worth mentioning that you know this is probably one of the first time many children have had to choose their own password. They've been in a situation where they needed a password, and whether it's for the learning apps that the school has asked them to use, whether it's for email that they've had to start using, whether it's for, say, Google, because they're using Google Classroom or Google Hangouts. So really, passwords have, certainly in our family, really come, come right to the fore over the last few weeks. And what we found is that the default passwords that are provided by the school, often it's the same password for the whole class. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, or or maybe it's it's just a very, very basic password, you know, literally password class two or or something like that. And so I think really just starting off with changing the passwords at the first opportunity, making them unique to you, it's it's both good practice and it's also helping the young people keep their their own information secure and, and private too. In the article that you wrote for Naked Security, you've got a nice little table that shows how you can get even young primary school kids to come up with a phrase that is special to them. So even though kids aren't exactly random number generators, there's no reason why they can't do at least as good a job as the average adult with a little bit of help. Yeah. And and I think keeping it age appropriate, you know your child, you know what's realistic for your child, but certainly for primary age children, coming up with a, a short phrase and then putting that together as a little passphrase, that's, that's very achievable for, for many children. And then, as you say, you can then start making it more complicated with, with special characters and things like that. But even if you just start off with, with a, a passphrase um, with all lowercase characters, that's firstly a, a great step in the right direction in terms of thinking about making your password. But as you said, it's a whole load more secure than the default that, that they've been given already. So it's both a, a, you know, a step up in terms of security and also a step up in just the way you're thinking about passwords. Before we move off the password, Sally, let let me mention a bit of advice that you've given in that article that at least a couple of people have come out saying, oh, no, that's kind of controversial. And that is that you're suggesting that you should write them down. And historically, people go, oh, no, you must never write down passwords because someone might steal the post-it note. But you're not suggesting that you stick the post-it note on the monitor, are you? No, no, this isn't for the pinboard in the centre of the kitchen. Visible by camera from the road. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But um, it's a case of writing it down because young children may may easily forget their password and we don't want to put a whole load of pressure and hassle on them about that. And also, frankly, as as a parent, you don't want to start the working week going, oh my goodness, what was the password? Let's reset everything because we've forgotten it. So writing it down on a piece of paper, putting it in a secure locked drawer, the risk really is is very slim of somebody breaking into your house and and taking that password. You know, it's the, the advantages of of doing that of enabling you to just get into really good password security practice with as, as a family. I think significantly outweigh the the chance that somebody might pick up that uh, that slip of paper, realize what it is, realize which account it's associated with. So. In terms of just enabling you to have a secure family life, I think it's, it's really helpful. 
probably the most important advice there is that if you if you get given an account by the school rather than you're setting it up yourself, then even if you don't think that the school set every child's password to the same, which is a terrible thing if if you work at a school, please try not to do that. But whatever it is, if you're given a password by somebody else, you should assume that it was probably copied and pasted from a spreadsheet or typed in from a file. You have no idea who else has got access to that master list of passwords. So default passwords are a very bad idea. You should always change them. That goes for the adults in the family as well, right? And it goes for your for your home router and it goes for any device that you take over from somebody else. And I guess one one final thing just to mention whilst we're on passwords, because I know some people have said to me, oh, but who's going to go on my kid's account? Who's interested? But it also isn't necessarily malicious. You know, if everybody has been in the class has been given the same password and your your login is just a variation on your name, it's very easy for classmates who are maybe just having a bit of fun to log in as you and then they can see your work. Maybe they send a message pretending to be from you to the teacher or to another a classmate and you know, even if it's just people being mischievous, it can cause a whole load of upset and, and heartache. And obviously, it's an invasion of privacy. So there, there's always need, even for, for young children, to, to change the password. You know, in the same way that we always say to businesses, large, medium and small, there's no such a thing with cyber criminality as the crooks won't care about little old me. And if that's true for every individual, every adult individual online, it's certainly true for every child online. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go on to your last two tips. They kind of sound like the things that you can put off till tomorrow because they're not necessarily critical, but they're nevertheless very important. Patch early, patch often, so that you're ahead of the crooks where you can be rather than behind them. And sit down and have a talk about digital privacy for the family as a whole. So it's easy to put off patching, isn't it? Everything's working fine. If I install the patch, something might stop working. It might be a hassle. I'll just put it off and then sometime becomes next week and next week becomes never. Exactly. And then you realise, oh gosh, I never actually got around to doing that thing I meant to do five months ago. So yes, it's worth just taking the the homeschooling as a as a kind of an opportunity to get on top, make sh- uh, sure that everything is where it should be. Everything's as, you know up to date. Um, you've got up to date um, anti-malware protection too. Just a, a kind of an, a prompt to do a, a health check, really. And that goes for third-party apps that you have installed. Even if you're confident that you've installed them correctly, even if you're confident that their automatic updating is turned on, it's worth going and checking anyway, because there's nothing worse than thinking you're protected and finding out that, oh, golly, I mistyped some URL three months mm-hmm. ago and I haven't been getting my updates and I never noticed. Exactly, yeah. If you want your child to be homeschooling safely, they need to be on a secure device. It's as simple as that, really. Yes. Okay, so how do you recommend that, that parents do do that? Your basically your sixth tip, which is using homeschooling as an excuse or a reason, if you like, to sit down and talk about digital privacy with your children? I, I have to say, you know, homeschooling has been a real challenge for us. We found it hard with with work, with supporting the children. But the good thing that has come out of it is that we have had the opportunity to talk about security, talking about things like passwords, thinking, talking about what you share and, and who you share it with and, and how you share it. You know, there's a huge difference between recording a show and tell, which we then share with the teacher on a private link, and then uploading a video of yourself to YouTube with no restrictions at all. Exactly. 
And it, we were actually had the opportunity to have those discussions in quite a friendly, non-threatening way because everybody's using the the laptops for their schoolwork. It's it's a topical conversation. And and though frankly having to make family lunches every day is a bit of a chore, it does mean that we're getting all of these extra family meal times where we can have these conversations. So yeah, it's definitely the the silver lining with with homeschooling for us is that we're we're definitely talking about privacy. We're just talking about how we use um, the internet, uh, who we share with, and just making ourselves have those really useful conversations at a time when it's it's top of everyone's mind because they're getting straight back onto the computer once they've finished their lunch. So yeah, I think a great a great example in your article is the idea of when you've decided that you are going to turn on video because, as you say, maybe they'd make it a show and tell video and they know they're going to share it with the teacher. Think about what's in the background because in every room in the house, there are going to be things that actually give away, if not secrets, just information that really is nobody else's business. Exactly. I think that's that's a great lesson for kids that even though there are things that they don't necessarily consider private or super confidential or secret in any way, there is that element that if something isn't anybody else's business, then they're under no obligation whatsoever to share it. Yeah, and, and really should be thinking about, is it is it right to share? And you know, when you're in the family unit, you're responsible for the privacy of the people around you. So you know, make sure that you haven't got your, your siblings' private information behind you. Absolutely. It's, it's a really good habit to get into and frankly, one that they can take with them all the way through to the, to the workplace as well. It, it makes you think very strongly about that whole do as you would be done by aspect of cybersecurity, doesn't it? It does. It doesn't. And those are things that well, as soon as you stop and you talk about it, everyone gets it, you know, like, oh, yes, that's, that's a really great point. I really understand that. And, and I find that the kids are really willing to learn. They're keen. They're interested. It's just having those prompts, those opportunities to to start those conversations, and then frankly, they they take it and they they in my experience have have really embraced it. Excellent, Sally. Actually, I think that's a that's a great place to end. So it only remains for me to say that there was a seventh tip. We said we weren't going to discuss it in detail here because we have a separate article about home Wi-Fi security. Even if you don't have kids, or even if you're in a country where there's no homeschooling going on, you want to secure your home Wi-Fi. Even if you're not working from home, it's worth doing because why do you want your nosy neighbour or anyone outside to know what you're doing on your home network in the same way that you close your curtains at night? So, Sally, thank you so much for your time. And I hope that our listeners are able to put this into practice for themselves. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, to everybody who's listening, thanks for listening. And until next time, stay secure. Stay secure.